0: Trisha Shimamura is a mom, social worker, community activist, and proud Japanese-Puerto Rican woman running to represent District 5 on the New York City Council. Trisha began her career as a school social worker in a New York City public school where she saw firsthand the struggles students face trying to rise above systemic inequality. Seeking to solve the root causes of inequity and injustice, Trisha served as deputy chief of staff for Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, where she focused on community-centered policies and constituent services. Trisha helped deliver health care to 9-11 first responders, fought for funding for parks and open space, and supported residents and small businesses recovering from Superstorm Sandy. Now working in higher education, Trisha advocates on behalf of international and undocumented students and fights for investments in science and education. She is the founder of She Will Rise, a nonprofit organization building a pipeline of young women leaders in New York City. Trisha also serves as the vice chair of Manhattan Community Board 8 and co-chair of the Parks and Waterfront Committee. When elected, Trisha will be the first woman of color to represent her community at any level of government and will be the first Japanese-American elected to public office in New York State. This is Early Care for Every Kid, a podcast for people who want to make learning, living, and loving more harmonious for everyone. I'm your host, Danielle Ahn. Each week, I interview fellow parents, educators, advocates, and community leaders who care for and work with young children and families i share their experiences insights and specific actionable tips on how you could help make the world work better for everyone i'm excited to invite you into our conversation today with trisha shimamura I feel very much in alignment with your vision and I'd like to, for our listeners to get to know what you have to offer in terms of specific plans and visions as a candidate for a New York City council.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here and to be talking to you and talking to other parents out there. I I never really expected to be here. I never expected to be the type of person to run for office. Frankly, it was never in the cards or in my dreams growing up.
0: Who do you think is the type of person (laughs) who might run for office? Yeah.
1: Well, if you look in my community, it's predominantly men, predominantly white men who are lawyers who have represented our district. Uh, The Upper East Side, District 5, has never elected a person of color, not on the city, state, or federal level. We have actually, in New York State, have never elected a Japanese American ever before. And particularly in these last few weeks, as we've seen increased instances of hate against the Asian American community, it's, of course, weighed really heavily on me about what it means to be a Shimamura running for office on the Upper East Side. And it's been never more significant or important to me or meaningful to me to be representing the Asian American community and calling for more diversity, calling for a new voice in the council than it is right now.
0: And why do you think that matters? Diversity, we can always talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, and all of those things in terms of policy and how policy shows up in practice and is applied to families, education, and small businesses and public spaces. Why do you think diversity matters?
1: Sure. I think you said it so beautifully earlier when we talk about the intersection of, of our identities. I am not only a proud Japanese Puerto Rican woman, I'm not only a mom, I'm uh, also a renter. I am a first-generation college graduate. I'm solidly a working-class family here in our community, and I bring all of those different identities with me into every room that I step into. And I do think that representation matters. And a good example of that is talking about the Asian American community. Asian Americans make up almost 15% of our city's total population. And yet, when you look at how much money is allocated in our budget for Asian American social services, it is less than 2%. It's 1.4%. Why do you think that is? You know, you'll see many elected officials and uh, advocates rally behind the Asian American community when another 65 year old woman is attacked. But when it comes down to making those hard decisions about budget and what our priorities are, too often it's those who are underrepresented in our legislative halls that then get underrepresented in our budgetary and legislative priorities.
0: Because the needs are not represented. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And the same thing goes with parents, frankly. We have, I believe, one mom of school aged children in our 51-person city council. What does that translate to? Well, that means that many times for many of these committees in our city council, there are no women. And certainly no mothers talking about our parks, talking about our transportation, talking about our school needs. You know, we're very happy to have at least some female representation. But even then, we only have, I believe, 12 women in our council out of 51 members. Additionally, when it comes to issues like childcare, issues that are really top of mind for our families it's no surprise to me that we see those issues be put on the back burner because we have a lot of legislators who, frankly, are just not personally experiencing that. And that's not to fault them in any sort of way. Uh, There are a lot of conflicting and competing priorities in our city. But I truly believe that when we talk about recovery from this economic crisis, when we talk about building a stronger city, a city that's more just, more equitable, that lifts up our most vulnerable, we need to be talking about our families. Mm -hmm. And that means that we need to have moms Mm -hmm. uh, at the table. We need to have working moms at the table. We need to have moms that yes, are, are more diverse and are Asian and are Latinx and are black and are frankly just not as many white male hetero, Sexual lawyers, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I just nothing against them because yeah. I, I married one of those. Um, but I do think that diversity matters and you can see it in how our legislative priorities are playing out.
0: I want to highlight in your Taking Care of Families agenda that's on your website. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that a lot of these meetings the New York City Council would have is during bedtime. And I don't think that a lot of people who are on the council would be thinking about, okay, is my child in bed? Is the child being fed? How am I going to step out and away? So those are logistical things that a lot of working or stay-at-home moms, all those variations, we're constantly thinking about how are we going to get our child fed? How are we going to do nap time, bedtime, and get one or two or three or four children to school and back safely, all the things
1: yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm a part of the local community board that represents this district on the Upper East Side and Roosevelt Island. If you are interested in being more involved and more civically engaged, if you are maybe interested in running for office one day, what probably nine or nine out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, people will tell you is to join your local community board. It is kind of the first step in being more civically involved. And before the pandemic, those board meetings started at 6.30. They were mandatory in person, and they are generally held somewhere in the district. But that certainly doesn't mean near or close to your house. And it was, frankly, really difficult to do. I have served on my board before I got married. I, um, I was serving on my board when I got pregnant and after I gave birth. And I was all of a sudden they struck by the fact that there was no place to nurse my baby. Uh, There was no place to change him. That if I wanted to be with him or if I needed to be with him because I was still breastfeeding him, then that meant that I had to either miss my board meeting or I had to bring him with me. And thankfully, the pandemic has shown us that virtual meetings are possible. It's really made us think about access I think, and really made me think about the structural barriers that we put up that either intentionally or unintentionally leave out voices from civic engagement and being involved in your local communities. So one big step that I'm committed to is not only looking at who we appoint to these boards and making an active and conscious effort to bring more mothers to the table, bring more working families into these discussions, but also looking at those physical barriers that we put up and breaking them so that more families are included, so that we do have more broader uh, and diverse representation. And yeah, that somebody is thinking about who's taking care of the kids, and do these meetings have to be right at bedtime or at dinner time? Do we have to mandate attendance in this way and this shape and form because for so many people that means that they're out, and certainly, if I didn't have my husband helping me take care of my son, then that would have meant that I was out and you know all of a sudden it makes total sense why we don't have a lot of moms in the council, and it makes total sense why. We've never really passed universal childcare and why, when it comes to parks priorities and school priorities and youth programming, it always seems to be the first thing that gets cut. The nice to haves. The nice to haves, which are actually pretty, pretty damn essential when it comes to our families.
0: (laughs) We are recording this on a beautiful spring morning. This is when a child needs exercise, some sort of engagement or learning happening either at school or remotely because we are in COVID times, even just having to make the arrangements for the child during a regular working business day in itself is sometimes an obstacle if you don't have the right kind of support. You mentioned your husband is on board, and I think whether it's a combination of daycare or family support, without that, either parent, if there are two parents in the family unit, then without that support, how does one go about their day, you know, doing the work that they need to do to make a living, to advance their personal aspirations, their goals. And I know you are a big proponent for universal child care. What does universal childcare mean for you?
1: Sure. It's such a good question and thank you for asking it. Universal childcare means that nobody has to pay more in child care than they do in rent. It means that parents are not struggling at home, fighting over whose job takes more priority, fighting over who has to leave their workplace because the childcare decisions are just too hard. It means that families are healthier, are able to make a living wage, uh, are able to survive and stay in our city, and are not leaving New York because they can't afford to work and to live and to have childcare all at the same time. That's what universal childcare at the end of the day is. Universal childcare is is treating childcare like a right instead of a luxury. Mm-hmm. That is what it is. And for me, when we get into the nitty-gritty and what that really means, it means creating a sliding scale based on income for your childcare costs with a percentage cap so again, you're never like my family situation, which is we are, we are currently paying more in our childcare costs than we are in rent on the Upper east Side. It means creating incentives to raise pay and raise the bar in the childcare industry so that our infant care workers and daycare workers are no longer being paid a fraction of what our pre-K and first grade teachers are being paid. It also means creating incentives for the providers, who are predominantly women and women of color, to quickly and safely expand their operations, I believe, into our empty storefronts so that they can grow their businesses and also help us meet the needs of our families. And I'll give you an example of when all of those things fail, what childcare looks like. And that's no clearer than here in my district. Childcare costs in the Upper East Side and Roosevelt Island can range between thirty-five dollars and $50,000 a year. And when I tell that to parents at the playground, they laugh at me and tell me, actually, it's closer to $60,000 a year. If you took every single seat that was available to you on the Upper East Side in Roosevelt Island, every home care seat, every daycare center seat, every other child care service, you would still only be meeting the needs of 20% of the overall population. Less than that, if you're talking about infant care, which is below three. By those definitions, we are in a child care desert. And the costs associated with this are, frankly, just unobtainable for most families. That's why people still look at childcare as this luxury, Mm -hmm. this privileged item. And they're right. It's true. Because when it costs that much money and when it is that rare and that so few seats, it is a luxury. And it's no surprise that when you see who's leaving the workforce, when you see who is having to step away from their jobs, the vast majority of those who are leaving are women. The vast majority of those who are suffering are working class and low income families who cannot afford to pay for childcare. And the economic impact of this is multifaceted and multigenerational. When you don't give families the supports that they need to flourish and thrive you see the results of that in the long run. You see them having more obstacles to education, more obstacles to healthcare, more obstacles to workforce development. And so our failures in childcare truly resonate throughout various other aspects of urban living. It's all to say that at the end of the day, I don't see us recovering, our city recovering from the economic crisis that we're in unless we prioritize the needs of our working families. And that must start with childcare. Mm
0: -hmm. It's not only for women's rights and gender equity purposes, but it's really a numbers issue also for our communities, economy and small businesses to flourish for all of it to happen. Yes.
1: Absolutely. And that's also a great argument to make when people say this is a Oh, this is a woman's issue or this is a family issue. No, it's an economic issue, truly. It is we are talking about economics, economics of our city, economics of our of our ability to recover from COVID. This is certainly not a women's issue, and this is certainly not just a gender equity issue. This is something that's much more than that. And if we fail to see that, then really we are doing a a true disservice to our city as a whole.
0: I want to ask you, if we are increasing the number of early child care centers by exploring the empty storefronts right now, giving extra incentives for many women of color and women who are often in the business of early child care centers, as well as creating a sliding scale based on income and percentage caps, then my question is, where is the fund going to come from? And what would be the timeline for this? What is your vision for that?
1: Sure. So there are a lot of proposals out there for how to fund something like this. And I believe that the strongest one is the proposal for a payroll excise tax on businesses making more than $2.5 million. It would be a small tax on them. Very, very modest. But the income from that would actually be enough to help jumpstart this program and ensure that we are truly providing this sliding scale based on income. Remember, universal childcare is not free childcare. I wish that we could get there, but it's not. Um, it is frankly recognizing that parents should never have to be paying astronomical amounts of money for their childcare services. Another piece to this is when people talk about the money and when people talk about the investment, we need to recognize that this is a very specific type of investment. This is the type of investment that ultimately pays off tenfold down the road. This is not just a band-aid solution for immediate needs. This is truly investing in the long-term outcomes of our families and recognizing that when we are able to get parents back to work, when we are able to give families the financial supports that they need, that they are therefore less likely to need extra services in our healthcare industry. They're less likely to need extra workforce development services, that they are less likely to need other public services that then put less of a strain on those industries later on down the line. So I believe that the best way to do this is through, again, our employers. It would be a modest tax on our employers. It requires state action, thanks to a very democratic majority in our state legislature. I think that this is the true possibility here. But in order to shepherd this in, we need the commitment from the city council and from city leadership.
0: Because city council is ultimately what shapes the budget, how the budget is spent, correct? Yes.
1: It's a good opportunity just to talk a little bit about what the city council actually does. And it's good just to share a little bit of information. Mm -hmm. You know, the city too often, and I think this is somewhat purposefully, um, arguably, our New Yorkers don't know enough about who represents them. It is a very different system than in other cities and other areas. And it's part of the reason why I think that we don't see a lot of diversity there. Not as many people understand who represents them and who makes the decisions. So I love doing a little bit of basic education with folks about what the city council actually does, because then it empowers you to go to your city council members and demand that they prioritize the needs of your family and your needs and your community So really three things the city council does. One is budget. Mm -hmm. How much each agency gets, what projects get funded, what, how much the parks department gets, how much the NYPD gets, how much sanitation gets, budget. You hear a lot of conversations all the time. And just like I was talking to you about how much our social services serving the Asian American community get, that comes back to budget. Two is land use. Mm Everything in our city is zoned for a specific purpose. You will hear zoning, 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 these words about zoning or variances or ULERP. These are all words that are related to land use. And when a developer wants to build something that is not prescribed or not appropriate,
0: sustainable?
1: I guess I'm when a developer wants to build something larger than what is in that zoning allotment, they have to. Apply to do so. And this goes for anything. So if you live in a manufacturing area, an area that has a lot of big old manufacturing buildings, a little more industrial, and now um, a group of developers want to change that into housing. If you live in, if you even in our neighborhood, if there's a block that has a small building, a six story walk up building, but there's a developer who wants to then put something larger there. When someone wants to come in and put something down that is not written out in the zoning code, they require a change to the land use of that plot of land. And that requires city council to weigh in. So anytime you hear about luxury development being made or affordable housing being made or the switch between a manufacturing area to a housing area, those big land use decisions come back to the city council. And it's a critical role because as we know, New York has a relatively small footprint. And so there are always constantly big fights about how we use the land that we have. And the final thing that the city council does is I like to think of as all of the quality of life issues that frankly make our communities worth living in. Who picks up the garbage? (laughs) How are our parks cleaned and maintained? Where is there going to be a new school being built? What's going on with the potholes on our street? There's a broken sidewalk somewhere that needs fixing. How are we going to help our small businesses stay alive? All of these seemingly minor issues are are not minor to me and not minor to uh, the city council because They are the ones who make those decisions up. And based on how they prioritize, how they address these issues, I will argue is really what makes a community worth living in. And certainly childcare is part of that. What kind of supports are we creating to help our families? How are we fighting for our small businesses? Because we know that small businesses and keep and serving our families are related, right? And we know that just like we know that public safety is is also related to small businesses and how we activate our streets and how we engage our streets. And we know that sanitation is related to families because, again, it's how we use our sidewalks and how are we maintaining our waste and how are we making a more sustainable, resilient city. They are all intersectional and all related to one another, and that's really where the city council plays a role as well. So budget, land use, quality of life, That's really where the city council can and should play a role.
0: I know you have established a broad coalition among other city council candidates on the issues of maternal mortality, committing to reducing that, which is a huge issue, especially among Black mothers in New York City, of all places. This is frankly very shocking. Would you say there's also a broad coalition on the issues of early childhood care, like universal child care?
1: I'm working on it uh, for sure. Um, So just to talk a little bit about maternal mortality and thank you so much for bringing it up. Um, Another part of my identity, as we mentioned from the beginning, is that I am um, a very proud woman of color who had a very difficult, high-risk pregnancy recently. Um, My son is only 21 months old. And it was not too long ago where I uh, was dealing with a severe case of preeclampsia. I was in a hospital setting and the doctor on call, not my regular doctor, but the one uh, on call while I was hospitalized, dismissed my pain and misdiagnosed my symptoms because of it. It was only because my real doctor stepped in, thanks in large part to my husband who went running down the hallway trying to find her, that she was able to stop a procedure from happening that would have endangered the health and safety of myself and my baby. Mm My situation is significantly minor compared to the situation of far too many women in our city. And as you mentioned, it is shocking and shameful that we are facing a maternal mortality crisis that we are facing, that we do have in our city. Right now, if you are pregnant and Black or brown, you are 8 to 12 times more likely to die in childbirth than if you are a white woman. And unfortunately, nationwide, the U.S. is not doing uh, well on protecting our mothers during a most vulnerable, one of the most vulnerable moments of our lives. The CDC estimates that over 60% of all maternal mortality deaths are due to completely preventable circumstances. And when you look at those numbers and you look at how we are treating our mothers, Mm -hmm. you just know that there's something wrong here. Uh, And again, this goes back to priorities and what it means to be a mom running for office and what it means to be a woman of color running for office and what what kind of communities am I bringing into the room as a legislator? And frankly, we need to prioritize our families and our mothers now. We cannot lose another mother to a completely preventable situation, period. And again, this is not just a family's equity women's issue. This is an economic issue. The more we mistreat and undervalue the lives of our mothers, the more strain we put on our healthcare system, the more strain that we put on our economic recovery and viability, the more strain that we put on our families. Um, That's why... As a mother, as a woman of color, as a feminist, and as someone who is running to represent a district that has a lot of healthcare institutions and hospitals within our community, I believe that we must prioritize ending the maternal mortality crisis. And I'm very proud of the broad coalition of council members who have supported this. Um, I went to every district and the candidates running in these districts and asked them to join on in prioritizing my plan to end the maternal mortality crisis, which is a kind of long list of legislative items, both on the city and state level, that I believe would help make a true impact in reducing how many mothers that we're putting at risk. The legislative items include creating universal access to doulas, establishing community health centers in every community, investing in BIPOC healthcare workers, expanding the type and level of care for postpartum to really identify the fourth trimester as a critical period, meaning the 12 weeks following delivery.
0: Also expanding family leave after, right? Not just 12 weeks.
1: not just for 12. You're absolutely right. Expanding paid family leave. Absolutely. So all of those pieces singularly would be good. But together, when you have a coalition of legislators who are going to say, not one more mother, not one more family, I believe that we can actually get this done. And it's that same coalition building that I'm doing with maternal mortality that I want to bring to universal child care. It's in part strategic. I want my future colleagues to think of me as the woman who's fighting for families. I want my future colleagues to trust that as a social worker and as a mother, I know what I'm talking about and that if I can get them all on board with maternal mortality, I can get them all on board with universal childcare. It's very much about not just fighting for my community, which is always going to be at the heart of what I want to do but it's making the argument that this is not just going to help Upper East Siders and Roosevelt Islanders and East Harlem residents. It's about helping all families across our city. You know, one more thing I wanted to just mention is that research has been done time and time again, looking at the difference between female legislators and male legislators in terms of the type of bills that they put out in terms of the type of things that they co-sponsor on and time and time again, results show that Female legislators, mothers who are in our legislative chambers are more collaborative, they are more innovative, they are more detail oriented, and they ultimately are more effective. Um, They pass more bills than male legislators. They are able to build stronger coalitions to move pieces of legislation through. Truly, we are somehow missing out in electing and putting in place the most effective leaders. By uh, by omitting women and mothers from our uh, government, which is crazy to me. Uh, even the research shows that these are these are the people who are just more natural leaders, who are more effective, who can bring more benefits to their communities. Again, representation is not everything, but I will say that. Uh, when you look at the state of affairs that we're in, when you look at our, our child care crisis, when you look at our maternal mortality crisis, and then you look at who's sitting at the decision-making table, it makes complete sense to me why we have not found true solutions to these problems.
0: Mm-hmm. These are all interconnected issues that, are not, that should not be compartmentalized, but they are somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hi, this is a quick reminder that June 22nd, Tuesday, is primary election day in New York. You can find out more information on when, where, how to vote, and what your candidates stand for at voting.nyc, V-O-T-I-N-G dot N-Y-C. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Trisha. You mentioned starting at the community board level is always a great entryway. Start local, get to know your community needs. And what possible solutions and coalition building might look like. I also want to talk about your work and your focus on building a pipeline of young women leaders in New York City because that's very close to my heart as well, and that's part of why I'm doing this because I want more civic participation and activation, um, and awareness of what the issues are. So, could you talk more on sure. that and what that looks like?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, uh, this is why I was so excited to participate with you today, Danielle. I think that what you're doing uh, is amazing. You're meeting families and your listeners where they are. You're trying to engage them in an innovative, creative way to get them to ask. Good questions and look around them and to think about why things are the way they are, why our structures are the way they are. What are we really doing to help our children? Is it effective? Should we be doing things a different way? These are the questions that you're asking, which are just so important and really very similar to what we're doing with She Will Rise. In 2016, after the presidential election, I frankly found myself at a bit of a crossroads. I was crushed personally and thought a lot about what a woman's loss at the presidential level meant to me. I did feel personally at a loss for what to do or how to process the leadership of our country. And while I went to March in Washington. And while I made signs and stood outside and talked about women's rights and talked about fighting on behalf of families and women, I met a lot of women and a lot of advocates from across the country who told me, oh, you're so lucky you live in New York, much more progressive there. Like you're so lucky you don't live in Texas. You're so lucky that you don't live in Alabama." And honestly, when I was riding the bus back to New York, I thought I don't feel lucky. I don't. I don't feel like I'm that in a place that's that much more progressive. I have friends still to this day who are making less than their male colleagues to this day. Uh, same job title. They've been there longer, and still she's making less than her male colleague. I have. I look in my district and I look around and I think there's there's nobody who looks like me in this space at all. I think about running for office and I still have Democrats telling me that I'm not going to be a good legislator because I'm a mother. They're still worried about my ability to focus on my constituents when I have a child.
0: And also care for your and child. And also care
1: for your child. It's crazy. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think that Too often, we like to think of ourselves in this wonderful progressive bubble of a city where we've already achieved equity, and we've already achieved um, uh, equal stance amongst women and men, but that's just not
0: true. The numbers are not true.
1: Uh, Look at child
0: care. The numbers are not true. The numbers
1: are not true. And it's just not there. Uh, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney put out a book, and I always think about this, years and years ago, when she was the first woman to give birth in the city council. And the book is called Rumors of Our Progress Have Been Greatly Exaggerated. And that title is exactly right. Our progress has been exaggerated. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I did what any, I think, woman would do. I collaborated. I reached out to other women. I called and texted every single woman I knew in New York. I asked to get together with them and talk about what I was feeling and what we were seeing in uh, in the city. And work colleagues, friends of work colleagues, neighbors, former college friends who I hadn't spoken to in years all showed up at a grocery store mm-hmm. because that was the only place that we could all meet that was central. And we talked about what it was like to be a woman uh, in New York City at that moment. And we discussed the barriers that stop women from being more civically engaged, the barriers that, as you talked about, why aren't more women asking questions about the systems that are surrounding them? And ultimately, those talks became meetings. Those meetings became a coalition. That coalition created an organization called She Will Rise, which is Uh, A nonprofit organization focused on breaking those barriers, dismantling gender based discrimination and uplifting women in both the public and private sector to really achieve their dreams and achieve the leadership positions that we all know that they are capable of holding.
0: Mm -hmm. I think a big part of that is representation, seeing somebody who might look like you, who might sound like you, who might have similar credentials as you. Because I think what I found in myself and observations of other women is we would often take ourselves out of the running, out of the game altogether before even starting. Unless Mm -hmm. we're overqualified, we don't often apply to jobs, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? We don't ask for the same percentage or the amount of a raise that we probably Mm -hmm. deserve. And then we ask much less And get much less than our male counterparts who ask a lot more and who apply to jobs that, frankly, they may not meet the minimum requirements for. So I think it's largely cultural what we've been told as women and possibly our conditioning representation as well as, you know, just the systemic barriers like what the meeting times are, what is logistically possible.
1: You're so right about that. And just to throw a couple numbers into the mix here, on average, it takes a woman being told seven times to run for office before she actually runs. Mm -hmm. For men, once. Mm -hmm. All it takes is one person to tell a man that he needs to run for office before he jumps into the race. For women, seven times. In terms of asking for promotions and negotiating and recognizing your worth, These are not skills that we ever teach our women. I know that the big push in recent years has been talking about women in STEM. There's still not the trainings and supports needed to give women the negotiating power at the table. And that's really where She Will Rise comes in. We provide those negotiation skills. We provide trainings for how to position yourself and how to market yourself and recognize your worth in every room that you're in. We provide financial literacy trainings so that you can gain control of your finances, so that you do feel financially confident and able to take the risk, ask for the big promotion, uh, go for the unpaid internship if you need to, run for office, all of these things, which frankly you can't do if you are nervous and unsure and unsecure in your finances. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of amazing organizations out there that provide campaign trainings. So we do not provide those campaign trainings, but instead provide those underlying skills that are able to help get you to that place. I like to think of us as uh, farmers in some ways where we're sowing a lot of seeds Mm -hmm. and planting a lot of seeds and trying to make sure that that you have a, a hospitable environment to grow in that you have a network of supporters behind you, that if you are thinking about a career change, if you are thinking about maybe getting more involved in your community, starting a business, running for office, that you know that you have the supports behind you uh, to do so, that you are completely capable of doing so without a law degree, that you're completely able of asking for that promotion and asking for that different leadership role because you are capable of doing so. You're right. I think that women have been conditioned from a very early age to think that they are somehow always not enough, that they have to work harder, that they have to do more to be competitive. And really so much of She Will Rise is showing you that you are enough and capable and probably overqualified um, for for most positions that you're looking at.
0: I want to follow up on that. You are currently in higher education. Is that right? what is your title?
1: So I'm the director of government affairs at Columbia University.
0: I think I read somewhere that one of the reasons women do not decide to run is because nobody ever asked, right? And then you just mentioned that they have to be um, asked seven times to consider running. What was that decision like for you? How did you decide to run?
1: I am speaking from experience, In 2015 was the first time that somebody told me that I should run for office. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, I said no.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I wanted to have a family. Yes. And I was staring at hundreds of thousands of dollars in student mm-hmm. debt. I was dreaming of moving out of my small 400 square foot studio apartment into something with at least a door. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I looked around and I thought there's no space for me here. Mm. There's nobody who looks like me. There's nobody who's dealing with those problems. There's nobody who's, who's living my life or my experience. So therefore I don't belong here. So in 2015, when somebody told me that the fights that I was waging for our community, that the service that I was trying to fight for and trying to provide to my neighbors, that the advocacy work I was doing, when they said that I should consider running for office, I said no. Mm -hmm. And instead, I went to take another job to work in higher ed. I Uh, said that I was going to join my local community board, that I was going to fight that way, that I didn't need to run for office. Somebody else would do that. Mm -hmm. And that instead I could be in the background. Mm -hmm. I could fight for the Esplanade. I could fight for our streets and fight for our parks in the background. And that's where I belonged. Mm -hmm. And again, in 2016, somebody came to me and said, you know you're you're leading these organizations. you're fighting. you're in this community. Why don't you run for office? And I said, no again, i I looked around and now I was gonna get married. and I thought, I, nobody is I still was dreaming of having a baby. I thought nobody's you know, pregnant doing this work. There's nobody who's a renter who's doing this work. These are all people who are more financially well yes. off than me. That's the type of person who runs for yeah. office. I'm a social worker. I don't do this work. This is the job for lawyers. This is the job for somebody who's not me. So I said, no. It was only years later that I was again approached by somebody who said, you know, you should really run for office. And I again, brushed that person off and thankfully was surrounded at that point pre-COVID By a bunch of community members who said, you know, we've watched you say no a million times to this. When are you going to actually realize that you have something to contribute to this space? You have something to contribute to our community. And that's thankfully when I started to see that my background as a working mother, my background as, as a woman of color living in a predominantly white district, my background as a renter was a strength not a weakness and that the perspective I had as a social worker, the perspective I had as somebody who fought and has continued to fight for our community for a decade was of true value. I wish that I could have realized it earlier. I wish that I could have seen that I was kind of worthy of being in this space earlier but it took me a while and in terms of she will rise and the type of legislator I want to be, I am wholeheartedly committed to making sure that if I am the first, I will not be the last and that I will be making Mm -hmm. room at every table that I'm at for more women to recognize earlier than I did, that they are worthy of being in the room and sitting at the table. That is without a shadow of a doubt, one of my deepest goals.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to honor what you said there, because running for office is not for the faint of heart. No. I think it's a huge, I want to say, sacrifice on your personal time in service of the greater good, your vision for that. So I want to honor that and just thank you for doing the work that you're doing and trying to make it better for everybody. So that's truly a generous gift that you're offering with all the work and experience and um, insights that you have. So thank you.
1: Thank you. You're You're very kind. It, nothing about this race has been as I expected it to be. You know, certainly when we started out, we didn't expect to be in a pandemic. I never really knew what it was going to feel like to be running with a two-year-old or less than two-year-old, and what that means. I don't think my husband, as supportive as he is, really understood what it was going to be like to have your wife be a candidate and all of a sudden kind of take on the role as, frankly, a, a single parent a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. It's been humbling and exciting and exhilarating in so many different ways, and most of all, though, it's been wonderful to talk to parents like yourself and others who are so excited to see a working mom trying to elevate the issues uh, that our kids are facing, trying to fight for these um, really critical pieces of, of of legislation and infrastructure that we are just failing on for our kids. Um, it's it's been truly an honor to, to be a part of this. And I know that I speak for my family, uh, and myself when we say that we are just tremendously overwhelmed by, um, by the support that we've received and by the families who have come out for us and who are with us in the playgrounds, talking to other parents, trying to, trying to support our campaign. It really, it really does mean the world to us.
0: Mm. This is going to be my second Mm -hmm. to last question. We can have visions and ideals that we want to strive towards. Mm -hmm. But in practice, even right now, there's a pretty pointed conversation among residents of the Upper East Side who are worried about the safety of their families Mm -hmm. because there is going to be a shelter for single individuals, males experiencing housing insecurity right now, Mm -hmm. right? I'm sure you're aware of that. So in practice, while we all want to ensure safe housing for every individual Mm -hmm. when it comes to families with young children, especially also in light of a lot of the aggression and violence that are happening on individuals and especially Asian American elders all over the city and all over the country. How do you reconcile and negotiate that kind of tension, the tension between reality, the practice of it and our ideals? As a community. You
1: know, I think that this is really where my lived experience really comes into play. I am still pushing a stroller down the streets. I still am one of those parents who fears for the safety of our child. I'm still somebody who feels particularly vulnerable. As an Asian American right now, right now I don't travel by myself right now in this neighborhood. And I think that my lived experience as both a parent And as a member of the Asian American community, and also as a social worker, and as somebody who does think of herself as a very progressive activist for our community, I think that I carry both of those perspectives with me in every room that I'm in. So yes, I do believe that we need to take care and provide the right comprehensive solutions for our housing crisis. Because ultimately, the goal is to get our homeless off of our streets, because that's not any sort of solution for anybody and anybody's More a permanent, permanent solution. Solutions. Absolutely. Yeah. While at the same time, I am also somebody who realizes that in terms of what type of programs we bring in, in terms of the type of initiatives we are supporting, they should be programs that are keeping in mind that they are in densely populated residential areas with a lot of children and a lot of families. And that's something that we need to truly never forget in any sort of way, and that actively trying to recognize that like, any sort of solution is going to have to be actively engaged with our families and actively engaged with some of our other stakeholders, our schools, the gymnasium there, the other stakeholders there, because we are all trying to share the same space. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that my background as a social worker, as a mother, as a member of the Asian American community, it kind of feels like I'm I'm right where I need to be and maybe the right person to to take this and bridging this gap. My son has a book um, that we read to him every night at this point. It's kind of slowly driving us crazy, but it's, it's about a squirrel that is looking for her family and we read it to him every night right now. And at the end of the book, the line goes, now squirrel is right where she should be napping in her favorite tree. And oftentimes, particularly now, when my husband and I are walking around the community, he'll look to me and say, you know, we're right where we should be. And I I couldn't agree with him more. You know, I feel at this moment, particularly as we see these very legitimate concerns that can be conflicting and can look like they're they're opposed, but I would argue maybe not so much that my identity and the intersections of my identity are really making me maybe the right person to help bridge those gaps. And now more than ever, I do feel as a squirrel, I feel very much like I'm right where I should be.
0: Yeah. To create a vibrant community, a livable community Mm -hmm. where everyone does have that sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And, and feel
1: safe, definitely. you know, and I recognize that so much of this comes down to this idea that every single person deserves to feel safe while walking down the street. And I would say right now, nobody does, which is a huge mm-hmm. problem. But again, I, I think that in terms of solutions, in terms of where we go from here, I do feel like my experience right now as a mom, as a member of the Asian American community, coalition builder, and as a builder, and that's social worker that, maybe I'm the right person to carry Mm -hmm. and bridge those divides.
0: I want to honor your time. I could talk to you forever, but this is my last question Mm -hmm. for you. If there's one message or lesson that you would leave with your son or your other children that Mm -hmm. you may have in the future during the time that you have with him, what might that be? What would that be? Oh,
1: goodness. That's a very good question. When my husband told me the story the other day that he was picking him up from daycare and on the walk home, my son looked up and he saw a poster of mine in a store window and he looked and he pointed up to it and he said, mama, mama. He started pointing to the sign and the shop owner came out and said, oh, you know, what a cute little boy. And my husband said, that's his mom. And it was a beautiful moment for him to tell me and to share with me because at the end of the day, Teddy will not remember this run. He's too young. But I do want him to know that being a part of a community doesn't mean that you are that you are static. It doesn't mean that you can be passive. Being an active member of a community means that you fight for it. It means that you do everything you can to make it better. And not just for you, but for the other families that you don't know, for the other seniors you don't know, for the other people in this community that you don't know. And at the end of all of this, we're going to keep those posters and we're going to keep the mailers that have his face on them, even if he doesn't remember them. Because if I can leave anything with him about this race and if I've learned any lesson about where we are right now is is that win or lose we're going to be very proud of the fact that we're fighting for our neighbors and we're elevating issues that should be elevated and should have been elevated a long time ago. And that be a part of who you are, a part of who he is, a part of who he's going to be, is going to be somebody who understands that being a member of a community is not a passive role. You must actively participate in some way. It doesn't mean that everybody runs for office. But it does mean that you that you fight for and think about and actively call for improvements that are gonna serve your neighbors. Mm-hmm. So I I like to think that hopefully wherever we go from here, we'll learn that lesson.
0: Where could our listeners learn more about you and where you stand on other issues and follow along your journey and get involved. I can't vote for
1: you (laughs) because I'm not in your district. That is okay. You are doing so much and I so appreciate you holding us as a guest as part of your show. We're so excited about it. Listeners can go to tricia dot NYC. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-F-O-R-N-Y. Dot nyc. That's our website. That's where we've been continuously posting our policy platforms, talking about how you can get more involved. We are out in the community every single day. We're out in the playgrounds. We're out at the grocery stores. We're out at our bus stops and subway stops, talking to our neighbors and would love to see the folks outside. If you're bring, bring the kids, bring the family, come talk to us, tell us about what matters to you and what you care about because I want to make sure that every aspect of our campaign reflects the actual experiences and needs of our neighbors. So Mm -hmm. truly, you know, it would be a pleasure to meet more friends, future friends and community members out in our
0: neighborhood. Thank you so much, Tricia, for sharing all of this. Thank you. I hope you found this conversation inspiring to learn more about Tricia and her vision. You can go to the link in the show notes, trisha4ny.nyc. To learn how to vote, voting.nyc. To keep up with other episodes, you can follow our podcast by hitting the follow button wherever you're listening right now. Thanks for listening. Till next time, take care and don't forget to vote.